0: If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. You'll find that on page 1001 of the church Bible, if you're using that, Hebrews 2. And we're picking up, actually page 1002, we're picking up in verse 10, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. um, Arguably, the most important portion of Scripture about the incarnation in the Bible, this important portion of Scripture about the God becoming manness of Jesus, man, God infleshing himself in the person of Jesus. And so we're going to look this morning at Hebrews two ten through 18. And before we do, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we pray that you would help us, Lord. We pray that this would not be uh, a meaningless thing that we do, that you, would, um, that you would not allow the seed of your word to fall on um, the wayside and the hearts of men and women here, that you would not allow Satan to snatch the seed, that you would not allow it to fall on stony ground where it has no root to grow. We pray that you would not allow it to, to fall among thorns and be choked out. We pray, our God, that you would bless the preaching of your word and that you would cause it to to fall in good soil and that it would bear fruit thirty, sixty, even a hundredfold. Lord Jesus, we are dependent on you. We pray that you would be present with us. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, for we ask in your name, amen. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10, picking up on his argument about the greatness of Jesus, the betterness of Jesus. and And how he secures for us the world to come. The writer says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, literally are all of one That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, Jesus says to his father and says to us of his father, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life long slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the seed of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. It means to turn the wrath away for the sins of his people. Because he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever forever. Well, one of the most significant books written in the history of the church was written in the 11th century by a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm wrote a book called *Cur Deus Homo*: Why the God-Man? Why did God become man? It's, it is, uh, it is significant because what Anselm does in that book is he highlights everything that had to happen. In order for us to be redeemed. And he does it in a dialogue with his assistant Boso. And Boso asks questions and objections, and Anselm answers those objections. And it's really worthwhile reading. If you've never read it, you can find it online, read a copy. It's easy to read. It's one of the most significant works. And at one point, Anselm's assistant asks him the question: why was it necessary? Why was it why was it necessary for Jesus to become man in order and this is what he says to redeem us from our sins from his own wrath from hell from the power of the devil whom he came to fight and conquer for us because we were unable to do so ourselves he also repurchased for us the kingdom of heaven and by doing all this in this manner he shows us how much he loves us why could he have not just wiped out our sins defeated the devil why could he have not just done everything that Hebrews 2 10 through 18 says he did without becoming man and suffering. Why couldn't God? If God's almighty, God can do whatever he wants. And Anselm is going to unpack that, and he's going to talk about the justice of God, and he's going to talk about the, what our sins deserve and how God can't lay aside his justice and how it would take a person of infinite value to atone for the sins of all his people, a person who was himself eternal, to satisfy eternal wrath and he's going to go down the line and Anselm's going to answer portion by portion every objection that his assistant raises until he finally says to him he finally says your great problem Boso, is that you have not adequately come to see what your sin deserves you have not adequately come to see what your sin deserves. I think it's helpful because what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 2, verse 10 through 18, he is giving us a theology of the incarnation. He is telling us why Jesus had to become man and why he had to suffer. And that's the great question of questions. That's the question of the ages. Why did God have to become man and why did he have to suffer in the way that he did on the cross? Why? Why? the writer of Hebrews is actually going to say in verse 10, it was necessary. It was fitting. It became him. He had to do so if we were going to be redeemed. There was no other way God could redeem us. God is almighty. God is all powerful. God knows everything. But unless our sin is atoned for, unless the devil is defeated in precisely the way in which it happened, we would not have been redeemed. And so what the writer of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to lift from the people this disdain for the sufferings of Jesus. You realize that we worship a God who was murdered. There is something something offensive about that to the natural man. There is something foolish about that to most people that we say our victorious conquering Jesus Christ conquered by being murdered. That's what we say. We say that at the cross, when he suffered in shame and humility, when he was executed as if he were on death row, we say that is where he won the victory for us and that all of our hope and all of our life, all of our expectations, all of our confidence, everything that we put our trust in is bound up in his sufferings. Now, I think that's important because the writer has just said that there is a world to come. He's just said there's a world to come. You're not living in it. We're living in a world of sickness and sorrow and death and suffering. We're living in a world of injustice. We're living in a world with all kinds of things that we hate that are painful and hard. And he's just said, listen, there's a, there's a world to come. You're going to inherit it. How do you know that you're going to inherit it? Because we don't see it. We see Jesus. That's what he said. And he's ended that section in verse nine. Notice this. He says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that he may taste death for everyone. He became man so that he might die. God's grace meant death for Jesus. It means life for us. His, he became man that he might taste death for everyone. Now, what the writer's going to do, essentially, in verse 10 through 18, is he's going to unpack what it means that Jesus tasted death for all his people. What does that mean? Why Why did Jesus have to taste death? And he's going to do three things. First, he's going to tell us that the captain of our salvation had to suffer. He's going to talk about the sufferings of our captain. And then second, he's going to talk about the sanctifying work of our brother. And then finally, he's going to tell us about the substitution of our Savior. Notice there in verse 10, as he introduces this, The subject, he says, that it was necessary, it became him for whom and by whom all things exist. So he's God. He makes everything. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Nothing. Everything was made by Jesus. Everything, except Jesus. Except God. Nobody made God. He made everything. Everything exists in him. And it was necessary that the one who made everything and in whom everything exists... Should, in order to bring many sons to glory, be perfected in sufferings as the captain of our salvation. Now notice there that the ESV puts the founder of our salvation. The word is the same word used in Hebrews 12 when it says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author. He is the beginner. He is the captain. He is the one going out in front. I think it is used in that military sense, is the one who goes out before us. Everywhere in the book of Hebrews, the big thing about Jesus, besides that he's God and man and he suffers, is that he goes out before us. He's the forerunner. He leads the way. He crosses the river. He leads us into the promised land. He's the greater Joshua. He goes out in front of you. That's important because as we make a pilgrimage through this world, the thing we don't ever want to find is that we're alone doing it on our own. That's what we don't want. You don't ever want to think, why am I going through this? Why am I going through this seemingly alone? Why, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell them why they've lost their houses and their lands. Why they're suffering. And and before he even tackles the question of their suffering, he says he suffered. And so that means whatever happens in this life, you can be assured that the captain of salvation has gone through it before you. I remember as a young Christian, I sat at a table with a couple, I'm still not sure we're converted to this day, and from the church I was in, and we were talking about um, suffering. And I remember I had been meditating on this, that the captain of our salvation suffered. He He went through it first. He went... Through all of the, he went through worse sufferings than anyone because he endured the wrath of God. Not just the physical sufferings of Jesus, it's the spiritual sufferings he's enduring. And I remember as we talked and we were talking about what to say to someone that was suffering, I in some way made the point I think we need to remind them that Jesus has suffered, that he has endured hardship, that he bore in his own body all of the wrath of God against our sin, that he went through the fire. And I remember this couple saying to me, well, you can't do that. You can't just say that. You just need to hold their hand. Listen, holding someone's hand will never get them through what they need to get through. Telling them about Jesus as the captain of their salvation will. That's the point of Hebrews. In fact, the writer of Hebrews doesn't even tell us about the problems until later in the book he starts by holding forth Jesus. That's, that's the whole point of the New Testament. Everywhere, the New Testament doesn't, the writers don't go down and take one problem after another problem after another problem and say, okay, let's look at this problem and let's look at this problem. They hold out Jesus and they say, he's the captain. He's the forerunner. He's the one that goes before you. He's the one that's endured. He's the one who has in every way been tempted as you are, yet without sin. He is so identified with his people and led his people that it can never be said, God doesn't understand because God became man and he understands much, much, much better than you will ever realize. He'll understand much better than you'll ever realize what it is to be rejected, social scorn. Think about that. He's a man of sorrows. The God who made the world took the posture and the title of a man of sorrow. Acquainted with grief, he was despised, he was rejected, even his own disciples fled. If he had had a wife, she would have left him. Job's wife would have been a kindness to Jesus. Seriously, his own disciples forsook him and fled. He knew what it was to suffer, and it was necessary, not just to be an example. Notice what the writer tells us, actually. He says that he suffers, and the mystery of his suffering is that it was necessary for him to suffer that he might bring many sons to glory. We could not go to glory if he didn't suffer. You could not go to glory unless Jesus suffered. Now, you may say, I know that. I haven't heard that my whole life. That should, that should hit you like a ton of bricks, I cannot go to glory unless God in the flesh suffered for me. Now, why should that why should that be striking? Well, because man lost glory through his sin. Adam forfeited glory in his sin. Adam forfeited the glory of God. Remember, sin is falling short of the glory of God. It is saying, God, I don't want you. No, God, I don't want your glory. And God has to justly say, then you will not enter glory. You will receive the due reward of your sin. And so... That curse and that judgment on all men, the only way that the sons can be taken to glory is if the God against whose glory they have sinned comes and suffers for them. And that's what the writer's saying. He's saying it was necessary that the one who made all things and in whom all things existed should suffer to bring his people to him. Now, I think that's really the first beautiful dimension of the cross, that What Jesus is doing at Calvary is he is reconciling you with God. He is reconciling. The cross is the great reconciler. He is reconciling. He brings us to God spiritually in this life. He will bring us to God in the world to come. We will be in the presence of God for all eternity because of the cross. Because the captain of our salvation suffered for us. And I want to Kind of segue into the second point a bit here where we're told in verse 11 or verse 10 that he was made perfect through suffering. Now, what you don't want to do is say, oh, there was a point where he was imperfect. No, Jesus was always perfect. But he was matured in fulfilling the task in which he was called to fulfill through his sufferings. He had to endure the sufferings that he endured in order to be the savior we need. He couldn't have just died at the sword of Herod as a baby. He would not have been perfected in his suffering if he had died as a baby. He had to be tempted. He had to be tried. He had to... He had to enter into human experience. I mean, that's, that should be astonishing. God was a man. If that doesn't astonish us in any way, there's something terribly wrong. God entered into human experience. A stupid song years ago, I'm sorry I just said stupid. It was stupid though. What if God were one of us? He, he became one of us. His name is Jesus, and he suffered. And he entered into all of the miseries of this life. He subjected himself, yet without sin, to all the scorn and derision and suffering and temptations. His facing Satan in the desert, in the wilderness, was not just some little nice show for Jesus. It was necessary. He was being perfected in his obedience. He was as the God who sanctifies, becoming the sanctified one so that we might be sanctified in him. I'll explain what we mean by that in a minute. He first had to be sanctified as a man in his sufferings, so that we might be sanctified in him. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 11. Both he who sanctifies, that's God, and those who are being sanctified, that's us if we're Christians, are all of one. He had to become man because he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified have to be of one. Otherwise, we're not going to be sanctified. Our sanctification depends on God becoming man and being sanctified and made perfect in his suffering. Our Christian life depends on his perfect life, not just as an example, as a source, as a source of your Christian life. It is all in Jesus Christ. And so the writer says, that he subjected himself to that, that those who are being sanctified have one source. I think we want to take away as an application here that we need to many times meditate on the necessity of Jesus' sufferings. Not just that, that he did, and every unbeliever can, can admit he did suffer, but that he had to suffer in order for us to be brought to glory. That had he not suffered, we would not have been redeemed. God's justice would not be satisfied. We would not be sanctified because he, as a man, had not been perfected through the things that he endured. And so we need to meditate often on the need for Christ to suffer for you because you fell short of God's glory. Secondly, I want to say that this is teaching for us the sanctifying work of our brother. Now, notice what he says there at verse 11. He says, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, we should should look at that and we should say, why would the writer of Hebrews put that that way? Why would he say that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brothers? Because he should be ashamed. He should be ashamed to be called our brother. to So identify with us who are so rebellious and wicked. And this is not just a man. If he were just a man, just like us, if that's all Jesus were, was just a mere man, just like you, there would be nothing surprising about him not being ashamed to be called our brother, right? There's nothing, there's nothing about that that should say, wow, how could he not be ashamed to be called my brother? But he's not just a man. The writer tells us that he is the one in whom all things exist and the one who sanctifies. He's God. Turn over to Hebrews 11. I want to show you in verse 16 how this dovetails in. Hebrews 2, verse 11, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother, in Hebrews eleven sixteen, 16, at the end, we're told that God is not ashamed to be called our God. Notice that. Those who have faith, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Jesus is God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying Jesus is God. God ought to be ashamed to be so humbled that he would have to say he is flesh and blood with us and that he took the likeness of sinful flesh yet without sin. There ought to be something about that that so marks the suffering and the humiliation and the complete contrast between absolute infinite perfection and power and human frailty and weakness in the face of human sin. And yet God becomes the complete opposite of what he is in Jesus So that we can be called his brothers. How dare you call Jesus a brother? Well, how dare you? Because he tells you that he took flesh and blood. And so now he is your brother. And you know, when I think about Jesus, I think, I think that he is my God and my savior. My first thoughts of Jesus are not, he's my brother. They're, he's my God and Savior. The writer of Hebrews wants to press, though, in a very powerful way, that when you think of Jesus, you should also think of him as your elder brother. That he has so taken flesh and blood to himself, he has so entered into the human experience that you can say, the God who made me became my brother. He became my brother. No, the proverbs say there's one who sticks closer than a brother. I think that's speaking about Jesus. He is the best brother you could ever have. He is he becomes as close as flesh and blood as it comes in human relations to us by his union with us. And notice and I love this in verse 12 what the writer of Hebrews starts to do is he starts to to prove this by using the Old Testament. It's really amazing, this idea that Jesus becomes your brother in order to sanctify you, that he becomes your, that you become his brethren, that you become family, you are adopted into his family, that you become so one with him. He is as if he is your real flesh and bone brother. He goes back to Psalm 22 there in verse 12. Look in verse 12, where he quotes Psalm 22, 22. And he says, and this is Jesus speaking in the psalm, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praises to you. Now, if you went back to Psalm 22, that's the great suffering psalm of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1 to 21, are about the sufferings of Jesus. They pierce my hands and feet. They look on me and stare. They gape with their mouths. My tongue cleaves to my jaw. It's all about the sufferings of Jesus, the first half of the psalm. At this verse on, it's about the glories of the resurrected Jesus. There's a turning point in the psalm, and it's amazing the brilliance of the writer of the Hebrews to reach back and to see that in the resurrection of Jesus, what we're taught is that our elder brother stands as the worship leader of his church. And not only does he identify with you, but he sits with you and he leads you and he even sings praises to his father with us. That's amazing. He so identifies that Jesus, when we sing praises, which is why we should sing out, even if we don't know the tunes, we should try, because Jesus is singing with us. He sings with us. Notice this. Jesus says in verse 12, out of Psalm 22, I will tell your name. He's talking to his father. He says, Father, I will tell your name to my brothers. That was back in Psalm 22. The brotherhood of Jesus was back in Psalm 22. I will tell your name to my brothers. It means I'll reveal God to them. I'll reveal who you are, Father, and who I am. And then he says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise to you. I want you to think about this. It is one thing, it's one thing to think about Jesus as proclaiming God's name to us. And it's quite another to think about Jesus sitting with us in the congregation, singing praise to God with us. He doesn't stand... And this is the amazing thing. Though he deserves all of our worship, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He demands our worship. He deserves our worship. He is God in every way that makes him God. He so humbles himself and identifies with his people, believers, that he says he comes and he sits in the congregation with us and he leads us in worship. By his spirit, he leads us in worship. He helps us to sing praises to God. It's part of what it means, I think, that Jesus sanctifies us. Understanding something of our identity with Jesus, something of our dependence, something of his nearness, something of his leading us and helping us. You know, the great problem, let me say this clearly, the great problem the Hebrews were facing was departing from Jesus and departing from worshiping God through him. That was the great problem. Sinclair Ferguson says there was a worship war in the church and it was a worship war for the souls of the people. It was a worship war for their souls. There was a worship war going on. And in order to solve that worship war, Jesus tells them, I am your brother who stands in the congregation with you and sings praises to God with you. Don't depart from him. That's the whole point, is that he is... You know, I I think of my three sons. I never had a brother. always wanted to have a brother. Kind of glad I don't now, but wanted to when I was young, really wanted to. I've got three young sons, and I I love watching them be brothers. I love watching the brotherhood, how they function, how, you know, they love each other. I heard that one little boy uh, pushed Mike or something the other day, and Eli came over and stepped on his toe. (laughs) I love that. I shouldn't love that. I do, though. There's a brotherhood. There's a brotherhood. There's a, there's a camaraderie. There's, and I look at them and I think if God gives them a life together, you know, Lord willing, they'll be brothers for life. Jesus sticks closer than a brother. He so took humanity to himself and so dealt with our sin that he becomes the one who is always leading, always with us, always guiding. That's what keeps us from departing. We have a big brother who keeps us from departing from God. He stands as the worship leader of his people. Notice... Then what he says, quoting Isaiah 8 in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children God has given me. Now, it might seem weird to you to hear that Jesus trusted God while at the same time I'm saying he is God, but there's a sense where in the flesh... Jesus so trusted his father, so entrusted himself to his father, that when we look at Jesus, when we see what he's like, when we see him in the garden, and he's praying, not my will, but yours be done, and he's trusting his father, we learn from that, and, and then we want to trust our father more. You see, at this point, it is his example encouraging us, and we see that the one who became one with us to sanctify us also becomes the example of trust and confidence and and notice the care he reflects. Now he becomes a father to us. Look at verse 13. Behold I and the children God has given me. He's not only a brother, he's a father. He nurtures us. He cares for us. Um, the, big, the big thing that you want to take away here, why would you ever, ever depart from one that comes so close to you Not just to sympathize with you because of what you're going through, but to go through it before you and to become like you in every way. You know, this was the point. Listen to this carefully. This was the point of God dwelling in a tent in the Old Testament. Remember the tabernacle in the wilderness? God lived in a tent because Israel lived in tents. God said, I'll be with you. In order to be with them, he had to become like them. We live in flesh and blood in this fallen world. God, notice verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. We live in flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood. You see the beauty of that? You see the identity? Why would we ever depart from one who has done everything to come near us, to be our captain, to be our brother, to do everything necessary for us? Now, let me say this. Thirdly, as the captain of our salvation as our elder brother what has jesus done for us notice notice verse 14 and following first he has taken flesh and blood to himself so that he could die and so he could defeat death for us so the only way the only way you could face death in a non-frightening way because you know judgment's beyond that The only way you could face death and not be afraid is if he tasted it for you, if he destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil. Doris Weeks and Ron Weeks are up with their friend who's dying in hospice, and she wrote yesterday that you see the difference of one who has the peace of knowing that God has conquered death, and now they're facing death, knowing who they're trusting and where they're going the power of death has been defeated. You know, people are afraid of death. They may try to they may try to talk themselves out of it with some theory of reincarnation or some other nonsense, but fundamental to being image bearers of God is that we see death as the entry into judgment. We're going to have to give an account. We don't get to just go through this world and do whatever we want to do. We don't get to just talk harshly to people and and be proud and greedy and and sexually immoral. We don't get to do all the things that we've done, and there be no repercussions. And so it was necessary that he become man and die to take away the power of death and the one who held the power of death over men and kept kept them in fear. Notice what he says. He says, to deliver those, verse 15, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage, I have met two people in my life, two unbelievers, who admitted they were afraid of death. I thought they were joking. Only two of all the people I've witnessed to. I met two guys on the boardwalk in New Jersey years ago and I was going out and I said, I said, hey, you know, we're talking about the gospel. Can we ask you some questions? And somehow got to the question, if you die, and he said, I'm terrified. I thought he was joking. He was like, I'm terrified. And I was like, really? (laughs) You're not joking? He's like, no. I mean, I think about it all the time. And then I was like, really? You're the only person that's ever admitted what the Bible says (laughs) about people. You're the only person I've ever met that's not a Christian that's admitted there's a fear to death. And he said, oh yeah, my buddy over here, he talks about all the time too. And he got his friend. He was like, he was like, tell him, what do we talk about? He's like, yeah, we talk about death all the time. My friends think I'm crazy, but they're like, just don't worry about it. You'll just, you'll be dead. That'll be it. He's like, but no, I know, like, there's something else, and I'm I'm scared. And I said, well, that's why Jesus died, so that you don't have to be scared. You can trust him. You can trust him who conquered death and crushed the serpent's head. Notice what he did. Just real quick, notice this. He defeats the devil, verse 14. He takes away Satan's power over you, his condemning power. He can't hold you in bondage anymore. And then notice verse 15, he defeats death and the fear of death. So he overthrows death's power by his own death. And then notice what he does there in verse 17. He makes propitiation for the sin of the people, Satan, death, sin. Jesus in the incarnation deals with every enemy that you and I have. Every one of your enemies bound up in Satan Death, sin, those are your enemies. Jesus becomes man, he suffers, the captain of our salvation goes through death for us, he faces that for us, he destroys the works of the devil, he overthrows death, he takes the sting out of death, and he atones for all your sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to depart from that Jesus. I want to know that Jesus more. I mean, if somebody did, if somebody, if somebody made dying a little bit easier, you would feel a sense of gratitude to them. Here's one who did everything, who has done everything, everything necessary. I want to take it back as we close to verse 10. It was fitting, it was necessary. I hope that you will. I hope that you will start meditating on the truths of this text and that unless Jesus had done what he had done, you would still be under the power of Satan, the fear of death, in bondage to sin, and heading for judgment. But because he's taken it all, because it was necessary that that's how he deals with it, your elder brother and the captain of your salvation has so united himself to you that there is is no more... (coughs) There is no more enemy to fear. That means, even though you know you've done millions and millions of things wrong, I think it probably is. I'll be interested on Judgment Day to find out how many sins I actually committed. I'm sure it's way more than I could ever number. And that means that none of them are going to be held against you if you're in Jesus. Look. He made propitiation for the sins of his people. He defeated death. He overthrew the one that had the power of death, the devil. I hope that you'll, you'll press into him. I hope that you'll press into him. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews wants, is that we would, we would go to him. We would stay with him. We would continue, that we would trust him and love him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the captain of our salvation. We thank you for our elder brother who tasted death for us and who, by his own death, defeated the devil and took out the sting and atoned for our sins and turned away your wrath and has accomplished everything that we needed in our place. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who has gone before us and that even now you are here with us in, in the assembly, declaring your Father's name and singing praises with us. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to understand more of what we have in you. Help us to understand our privileges, our union with you, the greatness of your incarnation. We pray that you would please enlighten every mind and heart. We pray that you would draw near to us, Lord Jesus, and that even now as we continue to worship, that we would know that you are here sitting with us and worshiping with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.